Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate in Gender, Feminist, and Women's Studies at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Neferti Tadiar about her new book, Remaindered Life, published by Duke University Press in 2022. Dr. Tadiar is Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College and also the author of Things Fall Away, Philippine Historical Experience and the Makings of Globalization and Fantasy Production, Sexual Economies and Other Philippine Consequences for the New World Order, which was awarded the Philippine National Book Award in Cultural Criticism for 2005. She is also co-editor of Beyond the Frame, Women of Color and Visual Representation, along with Dr. Angela Davis. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Tadiar. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the book? And... Essentially, what I'm asking is what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself? Well, you know, I am um, a person and this is a person whose entire biographical life and including the lives of my uh, parents and grandparents have been marked and shaped by imperial wars. Um, I grew up in the Philippines. I um, was uh, I lived under. Uh, I grew up under martial law in the shadow of earlier wars, but also in the midst of uh, counterinsurgency wars that were sponsored by the U.S. And uh, so I was witness to a lot of the struggles um, that people faced because they also fought back. When I got to the U.S. in the the late 80s, it it made sense that intellectually I was drawn to Marxism and feminism and post-colonial theory to try to understand, you know, the conditions out of which um, I emerge, but to understand that the life that I also just uh, lived, it was shortly after the deposing of the Marcuses that I came to graduate school in the U.S. But then when I got the job um, um, coming to the U.S., I also started to see the struggles of um, uh, people here, marginalized people in the U.S., and started to also understand um, these imperial wars from another place. And so by the time I got to the University of um, California in Santa Cruz, um, I really was very um, struck by uh, Black feminists, women of color, um, and queer writing and uh, activism. And I think that was a lot of my political education in California uh, came out of that. So... um, that at the same time, soon after I got to California, you know, was the beginning of the uh, the war on terror. So, um, you know, as I said, I began saying that my life was marked by war, but the, the longest war, I think, um, that 
I've lived through in the last half of my life or more now was this war on terror, uh, but seen from within the U.S. rather than from the Philippines. And so you asked me what, why, what needed, um, what was the question, why this book had to be written, why I felt it had to be written? Um, well, I had other, I had other interests, uh, but as I say in the book, this completely took over. Um, I was writing political talks. I was witnessing all of these atrocities, you know, from um, from the war on terror, and trying to wrap my mind around it. And so, this was a very long process um, in, in writing political talks, teachings, etc. And much of that didn't make it into the book, but it did shape my. Um, preoccupations and my thinking about disposability and survival. And so that's the longish intellectual journey that I took. The more immediate uh, one in putting it together was perhaps, you know, like why write a book on this? Many of us are grappling with the same questions. But the reason that I focus on remaindered life is because I also saw that um, still in the fight against it, the continuing, um, the continuing role that value was playing in politics, and in academia, and um, and so, you know, trying to think about as as capital, the the financialization of capital, as it began to subsume all of us in the machinations of producing value. Thank you for sharing this. And I think um, I have a lot of follow-up questions. But at first, I will ask you um, what the central arguments of your book are and how are the chapters organized. Okay. I mean, in its simplest way, the main argument of the of the book is that survival or the reproduction um, of, of life that is deemed disposable is uh, central to global capitalism today. It is the um, it is a major resource and engine of global capitalism. So it is a feminist argument, and there are two components of that. As a resource, you know, it's a theory of imperialism. Um, imperialism being the expanded reproduction of capital that requires the dispossession of um, whole swaths of modes of life, whole um, peoples, groups, etc., as the condition of its existence. Right, that reproduction. Um, but also the role of the social reproduction of people deemed disposable as really the um, not not just um, as fuel, right, fuel resource, but also as drivers, as engines of creativity um, that capital um, is also subsuming into its mode of accumulation. So it's it is an argument about um, this life making. As, as I said, resource and engine, or in my terms, as infrastructure, as part of the infrastructure of global capital accumulation, but also as platforms for those who are deemed disposable, and these are overlooked um, engines. That that I think would be the core argument. Um, um, and how is your book organized? Like how how does the argument frame? the way in which your book proceeds? Um, well, so the book is in five parts. The first part is an attempt to think about, to uh, lay out the theoretical 
um, the, the theoretical armature of the book. So it's on a value waste remainder. Uh, it is thinking about um, it's setting the conceptual terms for the book. The second part um, hones in on the importance of the notion of lifetimes, which is um, a way that I that try to expand our idea of the, the spaces and times of uh, the production of capital so that it is both um, global and also that it, um, that it happens in variegated times across um, uh, across different social landscapes, right? So the second part is on lifetimes. It's a way to demonstrate how the, the new political economy of life can, can um, depend on lifetimes of expenditure, you know, not just lifetimes of labor as we understand labor. And, um, and then it's a, a demonstration of what um, is in an excess of disposability uh, when we think about um, when we think about the lifetimes of survival of these populations and the kind of life-making practices that I do. And so it's an attempt to think about that. And then the third part is thinking about the geography, uh, the global geography of uh, this political economy of life and its, um, it, and its capacity to create value out of movement, circulation. It's also about, um, it's also about this ideal of city everywhere, which is a, an urban fantasy that's driving the remaking of our entire global landscape and, um, and also shaping the terms of inclusion of um, a new global um, citizen class uh, that transcends um, you know, n- national boundaries. And the fourth um, part is on um, the imperial shift, Um, thinking how we got here. The imperial shift, not just in um, economic terms, but politically. So it's about governmentality. And here I focus on the security architecture um, of the U.S. uh, globally with with a focus on West Asia um, because uh, it is... It is a region in which the Philippines that I write a, a lot about in this book is um, participates in and is involved in, shaped by. And then I focus specifically on Rodrigo Duterte's um, new form of government. Obviously, the elections just happened, so he's no longer there. But I think it uh, it doesn't really matter because this is a regime and a government uh, that is based on this imperial shift of politics. It changes this new political economy uh, of life and the role of the state changes the terms in which politics happens. It is both um, in, in such massive massive um, aggregate scales um, as well as what we normally understand as politics, the politics of representation. And the last part is, um, is called By the Waysides and it's an attempt to think about spaces of bypass in this globopolis that I just sketched out um, or that I describe in all of the previous chapters. This, this, this is about a global space-time that we're in. So bypass is these places that are not, not places necessary in terms of just geographies, but also times that are bypassed and how we think about these spaces and times um, that somehow fall off or or uh, are remaindered um, from this dialectic of waste and value that uh, continues to absorb everything in its path. Um, 
I think one of the things that really did um, strike me when I was reading the book is how um, you use this language. Um, and, and I think like you do a lot of conceptual work around waste. And I think one of the things that really struck me was that you were so clearly stating that entire populations and zones and regions and people can be just demarcated as waste and then also be used within the within the chain of production as valuable but as waste and and i think that really did strike me as 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 something that you know was crucial to your framing of of the book but um one of the other things that i wanted to ask you about was that uh, throughout the book you insist on this um phrasing that uh, there is this war to be human or there is this war to becoming human and um and one of the questions that i had was uh, you know how, why wouldn't you put it as the desire or need to be seen as human and and as i read your book of course it became clear but i wanted to ask you this because um i i think and and even before we started the podcast we were talking about it a little bit that there is this discourse of war and um uh, the process of war and one of the things that you do is you show us how war um happens on a kind of global scale but also on a very intimate scale and and i think that is you know what is really fascinating about the book as well and and i guess i'm asking why you are foregrounding war and war metaphors in this theorization um one of the answers you already gave in that um you said your entire trajectory was shaped by war in some way um but uh, i think my question is what particular purpose does the the metaphor around war um serve in your writing and the argument that you're making and just an add on like would you even say that war is a metaphor here no <laughs> that was, that would be the first answer which is war is not a metaphor um in fact to see war as only military action confined to specific um moments and events you know or you know outright assault i think is to contain it um and so it you know to sequester um to sequester this event from what becomes normalized as the not war as everyday life and it seems to me to be important um to you know continuously relink that which has been severed which is that everyday life you know uh the way that we live it the way that we are the imperative to live it the imperative to produce the imperative to circulate the movement these are imperatives that's one of the reasons that i say the war to be human rather than the desire these are imperatives right that they don't they don't come out of you know sometimes desire has this connotation of you know wanting from the inside even if it's ideological or not but it is an imperative um that that um is very powerful and um and also um difficult to elude if you are to survive it's difficult to to uh, go against which is what becoming human is it's the imperative to become human as a form of survival um even as becoming human is an impossibility from the outset it's still an imperative 
to work by the terms, to live by the terms of it. So the again, it's not a metaphor. Um, I think war is too easily spectacularized as the not everyday life. Um, and it underwrites everything that we do and all of our, um, n- not just us, but, you know, it's not just in far off places. And so when I say war is marked our everyday life, did it mean that in every single moment I felt outright assault? No, but it suffused the, the life that I live. And I think it suffuses, especially the generation that um, in the United States after uh, 9-11, I think, you know, they, they may see it in different ways and climate, et cetera, but that's also part of the war. Those are wars um, against um, all of the non-humans, including nature. Um, it's so interesting that you said that because um, um, even when I was reading your book, one of the things that I was thinking about was how... Um, I think in Undoing the Demos or something, Wendy Brown had written that um, one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism is that it colors your discourse. So even in the small ways in which you think about, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships, you use terms of investment or disinvestment or value or worth, etc. Right. And, And that had really stayed with me and I found it very useful. And I think you're doing something similar with the question of war in your book um and 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 this is why i wanted to ask you what particular purpose it's serving in the writing um and uh, essentially it also relates to my next question which is that you draw the links between the processes of colonization modernity globalization neoliberalism like you your work actually spans all of these um, terrains and then you trace the question of the human through value on one hand and based on the other so like you said it was a dialectic um, and in chapter three you also ask what after all is the human if not the life form of value and in many ways I find this question to be at the heart of your book because you're you're tracing how the human becomes valuable becomes waste becomes valuable through the waste and then are tracing what the what remainder is left, right? And and could you describe this relation a bit more for our listeners? Well, um, as you said, the, you know the the it the the formulation is the life a human is the life form of value. Um, there are two parts of that because later on I say perhaps the the human is no more than the life form of value. So the human, as we know from you know so many. Um, critiques of colonial humanism was an ideal, a bourgeois colonial ideal of what it meant to be this worthy existence above all forms of other existence um, and um, to be an, uh, a life and an existence um, more valuable than, than uh, those who were racialized, right? who appeared as lesser or um, less than human or non-human. And so um, that history of colonial his- humanism is also the history of capitalism, is also the history of the, um, the, not just the discourse, but the operation and the organization of value and value production. We know this when we think about the histories of labor, the, the histories of you know, colonial labor and 
um, the histories of imperialism that upheld um, the capitalism proper, if there is such a thing, right? The labor-capital relation. So uh, again, to go back to the war part, the war is important because it is part of the argument in the book that imperial dispossession is an abiding and necessary um, part of capitalist accumulation. It creates the milieus for um, for exploitation in the labor capital relation. So with that said, that if imperial dispossession and war against the against non-humans, right, or um, and then later becoming human are part of the creation of value and the history of value formation, then the human stands for this, the, the, the life form of value Value can be embodied in many other, in many things. It could be money, it could be assets, commodities, right, etc. But in terms of lives, the life form of value is the human. In a moment when the human itself is being relativized, relegated, right, in an, an economy in which, you know, human life is perhaps only just the means of more value creation. That's what I'm saying, that it is no more than the life form of value. It perhaps may not necessarily be upheld as a bourgeois normative ideal, uh, but it continues to organize our activity, our actions, our productivity, uh, our pursuits um, in fractal ways. Um, and just one last thing. Saying, in doing so, yeah. it, also, it also then... Um, it also has to, it's concomitant with the production of waste. And therefore, what is going to be wasted, what is going to be disposable, depends on that notion, that code of the human. Um, and so, and that's where gender, race, sexuality come in, because all of those codes are part of the making of human as value. But then they also operate beneath the scale of the social individual or the identity that they will also operate in, in uh, parsing out how we use our time, what is worth our time, what is valuable uh, time, whose time is valuable. So it, it comes, it, the human here is part of the coding mechanism for deciding what is waste and what is value. And again, I think that is one of the... Um, one of the more arresting things about the book, for me at least as a reader, that you actually show very clearly how this happens and then you show um, how even that waste is now folded into the process of production, of accumulation, but not at the same... But it is not, uh, it is not considered value um, as... In, in the same way. So, so it like... Not you in know, itself. Very, yeah. It can create value through its expenditure. And, you know, just to give a, an example that's in the book, of course, is that, you know, the, the people in a prison, people in detention, um, refugees, they're not valuable in themselves. And, and I would not really say that they are laboring either. And in, in the example that I gave of the war on drugs in the Philippines, you know, um, slum dwellers who are shot by the police, you know, they're also creating value, but not because they themselves um, bear value. In fact, they are worthless to most people. And this goes back to the, the, the notion of the human. For those who want to be human also, you know, 
These are people who are undeserving, that they are no longer human, they're no longer part of humanity, and therefore their lives are worth expending. But they're worth expending not because they have, they have value in themselves, but because there's a new financial architecture, which called derivatives, that can produce value um, even out of... Um, even out of assets that have no value, because it's not about the assets themselves, it's about the fluctuations and the contingencies. Um, and so, yes, they are, um, waste can be revalued because of what you can do with waste, right? But not because waste itself is valuable. Um, this reminds me of, um, it's totally, perhaps it's totally not related, but it reminds me of how, um, throughout my school days in India, um, I and I think my entire generation, perhaps, um, every year would do these projects that were called best out of waste projects. And you essentially had to collect the waste um, that you would usually throw away and then create something with it. And um, uh, I, I mean, it's it's a bit different from what you were saying. No, it's not different actually. But... Because when you asked me earlier about, you know, what are some of the, the the reasons that I wrote the book, you know, I mean, I've been upset my whole life having grown up in the third world by the amount of waste that you see in the global north. That, you know, my entire life, I see people just waste things, and it's not so much that when we were kids that we saw things are waste and then you know we recycled everything we didn't make things go to waste right there would always be a new purpose and it's not because we were trying to say make something valuable about it it's because it wasn't waste that you know we didn't want to create waste right and so yeah it's not unrelated you know um i i think that's a fair point and and i was thinking about it too that um I think these are these are things that many of us also go through when we when we move from global south context to the global north, just to be a bit shocked at, um, or or more than a bit shocked at how much waste there really is just in day to day life and how much it's also valued. Um, not in terms of what the waste like how the waste can create value, but like it's valued to produce so much waste also. Um, and and that shows in your book clearly. It's like a driving. It's it's a thing that you analyze and and kind of take up. Um, which brings me to I think the next part of the book, which is again the title, which is what is the remainder then from this system? And um, perhaps you could say a bit more about what what then is the remainder, and then I'll ask you a few questions about that. Well, you know, remain. What is remainder is a moving target, but. Um, what is remaindered is part of this. Um, it's Vinay Gedwani who, who calls it, this the waste value dialectic. Um, and I build on that, but I also build on Lyndon Barrett's notion of um, blackness as an exorbitant um, force and origin of value. But um, remaindered life is um, what, what uh, does not fit uh, either waste or value, right? right? So it is about the excess or the surplus of life making that happens on the side of disposability that it's excess in the sense that you know you need you need survival you need life making in order for disposable life to become available for its entry into uh, a serviceable life or to become 
um, monetize assets or to to perform its financial role as liquid lifetimes in a, in a financial economy, right? But at the same time, it's not all subsumed. So remaindered life is a place for thinking about what is not subsumed, even in a rapacious economy that seeks value out of waste, right? So it's not waste. Remaindered life isn't what's disposable and what's um, what's wasted, um, because that active wasting is an enterprise, but rather it is the, the form of life making on the, on the part of those who are deemed disposable that finds no value, that finds no social use value that becomes the basis for value or is not just um, a form of life making that then is not just mere reproduction of life so that that life can be put at the disposal of others, put at the disposal of capital. It also is a space of, of fleeting enjoyment. It is a, a, a place for um, other kinds of qualities and times. Um, so remaindered life is a place where we can look for other times of life making and where we're no longer simply in the time of capital and we're no, so, no longer simply in the time of production. Where all of our lives, I think this is the the post-Marxist insight, right? That all of our lives are being put to productive purpose. And we feel this anxiety, um, especially the class that's um, the class that is for whom life is labor, <laughs> right? The, uh, the um, cognitive class, uh, such as ourselves, that you have to be producing all the time, you have to be productive. And so your life is put at the behest of this productivity right, that, um, that it requires you to create value out of what you do and, what, and yourself. That's our, the imperative. And yet, you know, when you look at what's remaindered in your own life, when you look at what is remaindered in this, um, the, this parsing of lifetimes of disposability of lifetimes of waste, even in those lifetimes of waste, it does not simply go to waste or it is not simply value, that there is a, 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 a place for an excess of effects, which sometimes in the book I talk about as splendor. Um, I think that was such a great way to, that was such a great way to put it. And, and um, I, I think in a way, like you're, you're writing also, like the style and the mode of your writing contributes to this argument in in such a beautiful way um and you know i'm glad you brought up uh, even the academic i like industry in this entire um in, you know in the conversation simply because it was a question on my mind uh, while i was reading the book in two ways one was that you are writing and in, in a way you are writing a book that is in, in that sense producing value. Um, and and it's an interesting <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting kind of uh, almost um, an interesting tension with the, the concept itself, which is the you know the splendor of remaindered life, right? And um, and it made me think uh, what you would have to say about how, um, or like how this entire framework of value, waste, and remaindered life would um, 
then be mapped onto the academic industry itself um and and then the way in your the way in which your book also is placed within that within that system and then circulates within that system well i um you know i would leave it to others to tease out how my book um participates in the very same economy which Uh, I write about it and I write against, which I don't deny because, of course, you know, I mean, all throughout the book, I never I never deny where I am or where I am located in this economy. And I, I, I think it is um, disingenuous for people in our industry to to deny that. Um, but at the same time, you know, as you just uh, pointed out, mine is not a purely rationalist account. It is not just a squaring of accounts and trying to give a theoretical uh, exposition at a distance and at a remove. Um, in the book itself, I talk about what are the value of words and words are just, you know, part of the fuel of social media, the fuel of of all this communicative capitalism, I do ponder that. I do ponder, and I had mentioned to you before the show, I, in, in finishing this book during the pandemic, I did wonder why should I finish this? Why should I even write it? You know, I mean, what use is it to continue to speak, um, to continue to write in, uh, in these times? Um, and yet, in the, I think in the spirit of remaindered life, the style of the writing, the uh, affects, the um, the if you want to put it, the desires uh, that are that are imminent in who I bring together, what I bring together in the book, uh, not not content or not containing myself to speak about a bounded people about whom I'm going to know a lot and create knowledge. I think that what I do exceeds the knowledge that I produce hopefully i you know in the book i talk about the words that resback um the the um activist uh, coalition of artists who are fighting against the killings in the philippines of what is the what what is the significance of their words and i talk about words as gifts and images as gifts there is also always interface in this terribly rapacious um economy that's subsuming everything that we do there is, uh, and that's the argument of remaindered life, an interface with other logics and other ways of living um, and other um, forms of what I call unreckoned forces of sociality. And I think that the book, you know, also uh, yearns for other socialities to emerge. It summons them by simply, you know, trying to show the connections, trying to feel with others, you know, similar or related conditions in a world where, you know, we know our places, we know our different social groups, we know our identities, we, you know, we're all kept in our containers and we're all managed in in that way and we manage ourselves um, also for political reasons, obviously. Um, And yet I feel that um, hopefully... The style of writing that you you uh, noticed, the uh, the form of it, the affect of it, um, might be performing or might be participating in another gift economy that's 
not fully subsumed uh, in the academic industry, because I don't think it will be, honestly, <laughs> is a very big book. And it, 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 it takes commitment uh, and it takes care uh, to read it. So I thank you. <laughs> Um, I think it was my it was my pleasure. I'd also been waiting to read the book ever since the announcement was made. Um, so it it was something I was anticipating very very dearly. Um, but <laughs> this brings me to um, two more questions I have about the remaindered part of remaindered life, and and one of them is that um, again, like I was pointing out before we started talking, um, that especially the idea of the remainder is something that comes from psychoanalysis, or is at least utilized in psychoanalysis very very much. Um, and uh, you know, in 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 a big way, desire is what creates the remainder. Um, and uh, I was wondering what role desire plays in your theory of remaindered life, how the remainder is produced, or, um, uh, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, of how entire lifetimes become remaindered. And and if, if there is a connection that you would want to draw between these two things. Well, you know, in my... You're reminding uh, me of that I, I did... Um, think with uh, psychoanalytic theory at one point in, in my career. But in my understanding, in my very old understanding now of psychoanalysis, um, desire is, is, doesn't create remainder, but is the remainder in the subtraction of um, need from demand. Um, at least in a Lacanian sense, I suppose. So in in some ways, yes, you're right. It too speaks of a, a an excess in the squaring of accounts, um, but between what is necessary and required and what is wanted and and uh, demanded. Um, so in that sense, desire might be a place to think about remaindered life. Although you know, one of the reasons I don't um, with, don't use desire is that desire seems to me to be in this context of psychoanalysis, to be um, always tethered to lack. Um, and lack does not play a part in my account. Um, and as much as desire can then be thought of in trans-individual ways, uh, no longer in its individual subjects, um, the, it, it does have, it still um, maintains some kind of uh, connotation of the subject, which in thinking about what's remaindered, um, what's also remaindered are ontologies, political ontologies um, that don't have the subject or don't abide by the rules of the subject or personhoods, the kinds of personhood that we see in the West that we we see we see in ordinary everyday life decomposable um, persons and persons who are permeated persons that can be shared or, or or who can be transmitted or persons who can be the mediums of other persons and the, and without suffering a loss of humanity um, so those kinds of ontologies I feel that um, to use the language of desire even with all of that may just overwrite it. So I'm very careful with my language not to overwrite the phenomena that I think are important to, um, to bring up. 
and to see that are a part of the world that we that we live in, this modern world. Uh, I think that's very fair also because, I mean, in, in a big way, psychoanalysis does tend to take over uh, a lot when it is brought in, but also in, in the way that, like, um, I, I think desire is also what makes the human uh, in, in a lot of psychoanalysis frameworks. Like, desire is what differentiates the human from the non-human. And uh, I think in, in that way, uh, especially if the book talks about the war to become human or becoming human, and if that is the focus, then psychoanalysis also does not um, necessarily fit because it's, it's this question of how does one become human that you're foregrounding, but then desire takes off from that place where you're already human, I suppose. Well, um, that's why the I think the language is very important because you know one of the one of the arguments in the book was is that imperial dispossession also has to do with the way that we code phenomena, and in the coding of things under uh, with the 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 modern codes of uh, what it means to be human, we do um, dispossess people of the way that they make sense of their own lives, you know. So it's a dispossession of the sense-making capacities of others to continuously overwrite their experiences with these terms that are very much a part of the codification of what was what is human. And in psychoanalysis, it's also consciousness, you know, I mean, and, and the unconscious. And, you know, there, that's a whole ontology of what being a person is. Um, and so therefore, I feel that the, the issue of coding and language, um, as we were saying a while ago, you know, the style of the writing, I, I think uh, the performance of the interpretation is um, through a, a different kind of languaging, which obviously I don't think that I completely, um, I don't completely um, remove myself from the communicative protocols of academia and the communicative protocol. Otherwise, I would just not be understood at all, right? So it is itself a form of interface. But I do try to foreground some of the codings and some of the ways, the ontologies that um, that we overlook or make light of or or just don't see at all and um, there's a chapter on thresholds it's called thresholds which is about the threshold of our understanding because of the way that we continuously humanize and to me this is to bring back the language of and reality of war this is a soft war to to make others human in the forms that we know or perhaps even the forms that we want or set the terms for or aspire um, to because it is the it, uh, the things that we aspire to may be forms of enfranchisement you know forms of life worth living that we want to share too we want to partake of we don't want to be on the side of lives worth expending and so we cut our deals you know um and uh, that that is to me the sad predicament that um we are in and what we have to negotiate I think this is a great um, this is a great taking off point for the next question, which again something that intrigued me based on my work and my own um, like my own trajectory of working on um, activism and especially queer activism 
and i think you are very careful throughout the book to kind of point out that um remainder life is not necessarily resistance and it is not necessarily political resistance and you you are very careful to kind of point that out multiple times and i think uh, there is an investment in stating that remainder life is not to be seen as political resistance by default or political resistance only and i was wondering why that is important to mention for you i think it's important to mention because um i do not want to create more forms of instrumentality um I don't want to identify things that then we can harness and mobilize and do things with. And I'm not against political objectives or political organizing, as I say in the in the end, you know, organizing is what also enables us to find new ways of being and thinking, et cetera. And I don't diminish organizing at all. You know, I, what I feel like I'm doing is supplementing that, you know, with always this horizon it's a it's a horizon that as we organize as we respond to the here and now as we we fight against um what we analyze are the political needs of the moment and how to address it and and strategize etc uh as we object you know and a protest and um and refuse that you know that we also keep in mind that you know people are living and making life in excess of even our own aims and i i think it is out of deep respect uh deep respect for those who survive and those who make life on a banal everyday basis that isn't all often given political value it's the the usual you know who's cooking in the revolutionary movement you know who's cleaning the dishes yeah it's 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 at that level you know it's at that level of like there's all this life making going on in the background and there is an abundance of it and how people survive is how we are making lives and how the possibilities of remaking our lives now and how people remade their lives you know all throughout that we 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 um diminish you know if we start you know only looking for what we think are political potentials at any given moment um so there's too much in history examples of um you know politics that have been reified and then served to re to uh, instate a different form of governmentality or a different form of state uh, um a rigid state of affairs uh that then people had to comply with because it took on the force of law and um it's not that i'm avoiding um you know organization and structure and you know and thinking about ways that we might govern ourselves um but i i just wanted in this moment in this book to highlight um all of the ways that tending to life can yield splendiferous effects and uh keep us going in non-instrumental ways and that they are themselves you know that that they're not just instrumental for us to live they are also enjoyments they are living itself um thank you and i think again this is where 
um this is bringing me back to again the conversation we were having before we started the podcast and in a way that the podcast itself has come on this like has been on this journey that we start with questions about what is dire and then we end with this um and in a way like you do this throughout the book too like you you hold on to these pockets of you know almost unadulterated hope um and and splendor and 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 in a way like it is it is really interesting that then this is also the book itself that you know through this dialectic of value and waste we end up with remaindered life and then remaindered life becomes this space of like you say splendor and joy and abundance and um beauty and <laughs> i think i'm glad that even though you wondered if you should write this book i'm glad that you did because this is what comes out of it and uh, i recognize some news at the you know uh, in in how you were describing remainder life and i was thinking of again this piece that i enjoy very much um this very short dialogue between munyos and lisa dugan on hope and hopelessness as the same sides of um the you know as a dialectic and then what is opposing them is indifference um and 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 i think i see that in the i see that as like an important part of your book as well thank you um yeah and thank you <laughs> no god no i was going to say that you know i mean the thing is remaindered life isn't really i have to say that it it isn't um it isn't perhaps an adulterated hope it it is hope in the midst of complete darkness uh in in my first book i i talked about feminist hope and that um and it, that was a hope that was not in a form of idealism or uh, you know an ideal utopianism but a different kind of hope and um i don't talk about hope here it's been very hard to think about hope as we said in the beginning of this podcast uh, in the finishing this book in the middle of the pandemic even though so much um happened also during the pandemic um in terms of mutual aid and and um giving and care and uh that people just rediscovered and there people just stopping you know participating in um in this you know imperative to produce and this uh, you know making something always of every moment of their existence making it count um and we pause i feel like we haven't we're no longer in pause and um and um i think in that moment of pause and stillness there there was a moment there were moments there in which um we can sometimes reaffirm you know parts of living that are not instrumental that and as you say uh, beauty that's not capitalizable or capitalized different kind of beauty um i think many of us and certainly queer theory um trans theory you know uh, feminist theory post colonial theory have has glimmers of all of the this attention um to the mutations of our lives that we we have we take sucker from uh, that we live for but as i said you know remainder life is inextricable from waste and value from this dialectic there will be a time when there will be no remainder life and hopefully there will hopefully there will be the t- a time when there will be no remainder life it can only exist in the shadow of waste and value 
And so that's why it is an imperative and a hermeneutic and uh, a method, you know, a, a form that, so it's not resistance, but it is something that we need to bear in mind. Thank you for that. And I think this is, this is very much, um, this is answering the question that I had for you, which is that, you know, you do say that remaindered life acts as a method and how it does that. So you've, you've already kind of spoken, spoken to us about that. And, and I think it's an important correction that, you know, it isn't unadulterated hope, but it is hope, uh, or, or maybe not hope, but it is splendor in the midst of a lot of direness. And maybe stillness is what offers us that moment of splendor even, which, um, again, I, I, I would say, like, you know, goes against this idea of value. Um, and... I guess my 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 last question would be just what are some of the provocations you would like to leave your readers with? And um, I suppose I'm also asking how would you want the book to be read? And, uh, and then what are some of the projects you're excited to take on in the future? Um, how I would want it to be read? I, I think I would like it to be read for... Um, for its theoretical depiction of the world that we live in, for, for you know, for the direness, as you said, for the direness that we know, but with an understanding of what makes it particularly dire, which is that you know that we are living on we are living on the lives of um, others and the lives in the future, and we are cashing in on all of these lives and destroying them with our given mode of life. Um, and I see we advisedly, obviously, because I don't think we're, there is a single we there and that we're all doing it in the same way. So the provocation would be to really understand this critique, to understand, you know, this depiction of the conditions of our present mode of life. Um, but in that understanding, and this is part of that understanding, to see that there is also such a surplus and abundance of life making that we are putting to we are putting through the jaws of um, of uh, capitalist accumulation that that we can take some of that life making back um, that that it's everywhere around us and um, the question is what are the ways that we are going to you know nourish and make that form of life making flourish um, outside of um, waste and value. Um, that's the provocation. One of the answers that I have in the book where I suggest that is part of the subaltern drivers of global capital is what I call vital platforms, which is, and I also refer to it as unreckoned forces of sociality. So when I say these, all of these things about like what we should do or what we should think about it, I'm always thinking cooperatively. I'm always thinking about the ways that, um, you know, we are not individuals and that we we make social life with others. We depend on it. Those are inextricable from our own lives. And for those who make kin, who, who have kin, who make kin, who, for whom kin networks um, and kin-like networks, I mean, there's a whole discussion about what kin is. Um, but, but those who create sociality, these forces of sociality are also um, things that we 
um, should perhaps strengthen into, um, you know, other modes of life, right, that are already other modes of life, but need to be peeled off from their role in, um, in global capital. Um, so in terms of future projects, that's one of the, one of the things that I'm um, going to try to finish is a short book on vital platforms. It contains some of my other writing on uh, a brief cultural genealogy of vital platforms in the context of the Philippines and how I see these kinds of networks um, operating um, through Spanish and American times. And so it's just a little bit more on what those vital platforms are. And um, that, at least academically, is what I have uh, in store. Um, thank you for that. I think it's, it's again, I feel like a very, um, it's a question that goes counter to the discussion that we've had. And, the, and, and it goes counter to the book itself to ask what future projects you have going on. Um, but I think it's just something we do with all our um, podcast guests so that the listeners can know more about what you have in the works. Um, but uh, thank you for talking to us. I think it was an absolute joy. Um, and again, I, I think there is something so unique about the way in which you, you think and you write. And it's, it's very rare to read um, someone who's work is so um, or whose writing is so much a part of the argument so so the form and the content really speak together in this in this wonderful way that um, you know I find very rare and quite beautiful so it was thank an absolute you. joy thank you I'm so happy um, to hear that <laughs> and um I think for the listeners, um, I want to leave you with a very long quote from the book, but it's a quote that is absolutely fantastic. So um, I'm going to I'm I'm going to go on into the quote now, where Dr. Tadia writes that remaindered life is not offered as a consolation. It is not a willful affirmation of what we would like to see: subversion, resistance, valiant strength inextinguishable hope. It is not necessarily an inspiring tale, though it could well be. What it seems to me that I am trying and feel a need to do is to express the order of the world as a deeply rapacious, indifferent, pernicious, sad, and brutal state of affairs in which all, barring none, are enjoined, coerced, and seduced to participate in something in or somehow negotiate and maneuver and manipulate. But it is also an order that in requiring the survival and life activity of those human and non-human strata it would consume and destroy has come to depend on what it despises, on forms of life that remain and become what lies just beyond its control what must and cannot be fully incorporated in it and therefore always defines its limits and the fraying edges of its command. There is in these zones of disposable life, of life put at the disposition of valued life a remainder, life-making not absorbed, superfluous expenditure that yield no material or immaterial social use value, 
This is not resistance by any existing political measure, nor is it a potential to be tapped, mobilized, and organized. What that remainder might be is inseparable from a kind of attention ill-disposed to producing value. What we take as remaindered life is as much the method or mode of our attention, of our tending, of our tenderness, as it is a life-making practice. The mode of this attention, the hermeneutic of remaindered life, is itself a mode of living that we glimpse and feel in ourselves and in others, often in actions and moments when there is nothing more to gain and nothing left to lose, but the very life happening then and there that is its thrill, its grace, its gratuitous opening. So if you want to read and engage with this phenomenal text, Remainder Life is available in bookstores and online.